Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Jude is the book right after that, right prior to the book of Revelation there near the back of your Bible. And it's um, like 2nd and 3rd John, Jude is possibly one of the least well-known New Testament books of the Bible. I, if I were to ask any of our church uh, members and attenders what their favorite verse was, I don't know if any of you would pull something out of Jude. You might feel different after uh, this morning. Uh, but it's got a lot of truth in it, a lot of really important truth. Um, it's a general epistle, which just means that, like First and Second Peter, it wasn't written to a specific church um, or a specific individual, like Third John was or Second John. Uh, meaning that um, it was written to all of the churches, which would include us here at Dublin First Baptist Church, even though it's two thousand years later almost. The human author is is Jude, God inspiring him to pen every word here. And uh, he, is, uh, he identifies himself in the beginning here, verse 1, as the brother of James, which uh, we know that this James is, is the one who wrote the book of James and the leader in the church at Jerusalem. And so this means that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. I mean half-brother because like James, they had a different father. Their father was Joseph, while Jesus had a heavenly father. Uh, and so, but it's interesting when we're going to read this in a second, he, he doesn't ever mention that he's the half-brother of Christ, just a servant, just a slave, literally, uh, of Jesus Christ. And here's the theme of this uh, 25 verse, uh, this, this small little book, right? Uh, it's contending for the faith. That's what he's going to call us to do. Contending for the faith against false teaching that was even here in the first century already infiltrating the church and threatening the church. And so, yes, we, we had that message, I think, you know, back in, in first, second, third John. That was a the theme. Guard against false teaching coming in, into the church. And we're, we're told to do that again here. And it, yes, it means like right here, right now and Wednesday night and Sunday that we need to be very guarded about what comes from behind this pulpit and in Sunday school classrooms and, and in youth group and, and and, and Wednesday nights, yeah, we need to be guarded about that. We all have that responsibility, me as your pastor, your deacons, but every single person here, even you. Uh, that's why it's so important that um, you all have this this morning, and you're following along with this to make sure that what is said here is in line with this. Um, but it also means the church, which is who? You. <laughs> And so that's Monday through Sunday, 24-7, because you're the church, and, and, and you're leaders in your families, and, and you need to be guarding, making sure what's coming through the TV and on apps and the internet, everywhere, you're okay, just a lot of power, all right? Um, we need to be careful, making sure and, and guarding, being vigilant about what's coming, and we need to avoid false teaching that's against God's word if we can. There's times you can't do that, all right? And so then we need to identify it uh, as a threat to the truth. And so that we're not swayed by this deception and that we can abide in the truth. So here's the heresy. We're going to get in here. Just, just give me one moment. So this was the big struggle that was going on, the churches that Jude wrote to, and actually 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, it's, it's all the same one. It's a philosophy that was prevalent then that was known as Gnosticism. It had two variants. Um, the first is an, an ascetic 
form of Gnosticism. That's what the church at, at Colossians was written to. Paul had to talk to them because um, that church had this ascetic form which said, all material things are evil. Your body is evil. The, everything you can see and touch, things of this world are evil, only spiritual things, you know. The, the, the spirit is, is what's important. And so because of that, you've got to be very careful. You need to follow strict dietary guidelines. Um, you need to like, live like a hermit or a monk, sell everything you have, and just detach yourself from this world. And that's actually necessary for your salvation. That's what they believed. God's word doesn't teach that. There's only one thing that's necessary for our salvation. It's faith in the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? So when you believe that, it negates grace. And negates the gospel. But then there's this other form of Gnosticism, the very same uh, philosophy, but it was an antinomian or against the law form. And this is what these churches were struggling with in, in John. And here's what they believed. Yes, everything is evil. Your body's evil. This is the philosophy that they believe. Everything you can see is, is evil. And so to, to fight that evil, you know what you need to do? You need to do as much evil as you can, as often as you can, and just get it out of your system. It's crazy sounding, right? But that's what they believe. And, and not actually that it wasn't just okay, but this is actually worshipful because that's the worship they were involved in. That's what pagan worship and idolatry look like. And so they brought that into the church. And, and you're like, well, why are we even talking about this? Do we see this today? We do. Do we have legalism in some churches that say you're saved? In order to be saved, you got to do this and this and this and this. And that's not just an effect of your salvation, but it's actually the cause of it? Yes, we're fighting that today. Uh, do we fight uh, in, in modern day churches uh, a philosophy that says, yes, salvation by grace alone and just faith and doesn't matter how I live and I can do whatever I want. I just come back and ask Jesus for forgiveness later. I can live. Yeah, we're fighting that too. We're, we're, we're here 2,000 years later fighting the same things, maybe even more pronounced. We've got these threats. And so this one abuses grace. That's actually what he says here. Doesn't negate grace like the first form of Gnosticism. This one he says in verse 4, it turns the grace of God into lasciviousness, wicked immorality. Let's read it. Verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me, needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, that how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manners, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers, they defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. So woe unto them. 
For they have gone in the way of Cain and ragged greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and they perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 14, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But ye, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. And these be they who separate themselves, they're sensual, having not the spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some... Have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, there's a lot of powerful truth here. Um, this book has, has got some necessary information for us. I pray that it would cause a necessary transformation because we're fighting these same battles. Help us to contend for the faith like you've called us to do here. Help us to see and identify and avoid, but to, to battle, to contend against this problem of, of a false gospel, of false teaching. Uh, help us tear down walls that we might have built between uh, the next generation and the gospel, uh, Lord, you can do that. You are the one who, who uh, calls us, who sanctifies us, who keeps us. Uh, and Lord, I pray that we, would, we wouldn't just uh, understand your word, but we would respond to it this morning. However, you're going to call us to do that. I pray your Holy Spirit would be active right now, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 1 to 4, we've got the purpose. Here's the purpose. Um, it's a call to contend. And, and verses 1 and 2 is just an address. Jude address, He identifies himself. I'm, I'm Jude, the doulos, the, the servant or slave, depending on what version you have uh, of Jesus Christ. And um, he identifies his recipients as those who, the King James and some modern versions have a different order, but it's all the same here. Um, I, King James says sanctified. It says beloved. Well, that's why you are sanctified is because God loves you. Um, and so it's almost a reverse order of the order of salvation we see in Romans 8, 28 to 32. But you're called by God. The gospel calls you to believe. And then you're sanctified. You're adopted. You're brought into that family, taken out of the kingdom of darkness, put in the kingdom of light. And then you're kept forever. That's what's happening here, and he's writing to the, these people, called out ones. That's what church means. That's where we get the word church for. It means uh, a, a body of called out people. You've been called out of the world that didn't believe God, and you've been called into this new family. That's us. That's who he's writing to. In verse 2, he says, I want mercy and, and peace and love to be multiplied. He likes using triplets of things. He's already done in verse 1. Here's the second one in verse 2, and as we go through, you're going to see many of them. All right, he wants 
not just doing well wishes. He actually, this is what we should be praying for each other. I want mercy and peace and love. I want you to not just know it, but I want it to be multiplied in your life. We should literally be praying this and showing this uh, to each other. Now he's going to give us an assignment in verses 3 and 4. Jude tells them his intent was to write about salvation. What a great topic. I hope that every time that somebody's behind here or in any classroom, we're talking about the gospel, the salvation. But he says um, that God has made Jude aware of a need uh, that required him to exhort them, to encourage them, to earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered, once delivered unto the saints. To earnestly contend. And the Greek word there is epagonizomen. It's where we get our word agony from. Because sometimes contending, it can cause agony. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's always fun. Uh, and he's saying, I'm, I'm calling you in a situation like this. I know it's going to be painful, but I need you to do this. And we're going to find out why here uh, in a little bit later. Subsequent verses tell us that there was a real threat to the faith. There's a lot in Jude that is so close to 2 Peter. They reference um, some of the same uh, scriptures. They also reference some of the same um, like historical writings that aren't part of scripture. We're going to see those in a second here. Um, but Peter said in 2 Peter, didn't you realize how in the Old Testament false teachers arose? And he tells that church in 2 Peter, there's going to be false teachers. Jude says they're here. <laughs> they're not just going to come to the church. They're here. That's what he said in verse uh, 4. Certain men have crept in into the church unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Like we, and he's going to give us some examples of Old Testament times when the same thing happened and what happened to people like that. And this is what they were. They were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. So wicked immorality. They said, yes, you, you know, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then they weren't, the, these false teachers weren't just doing the sinful things. They were encouraging everybody else to do them. All right, so this is a serious threat. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ that had been from the day of Pentecost preached and proclaimed to the church that was turning the world upside down for Jesus was now under threat. Satan's using false teachers here. And he's using them today to modify the gospel, to merge the gospel with other religions and philosophies. Maybe we can just add Jesus. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't you adding Jesus to your life. It's an exchange. All right, You're, you have new life in Christ. Um, and why Satan wants to do that is he wants to weaken it, to negate the gospel, to negate his power. It's still happening today, even more so. Uh, and it was causing that, that time, professing believers, they said, I have a relationship with Jesus. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Professing believers to live like pagan unbelievers. Uh, so that's a problem. That's what Satan does. He takes a little from the gospel. He adds a little to the gospel. And so then it becomes, as Paul calls it in Galatians, another gospel. And that's bad. Terrible, deadly, dangerous. Because if it's another gospel, there's not another gospel, there's only one. So if it's another gospel, it's a gospel that cannot save and cannot redeem you and cannot give you eternal life. Um, it's critical that you and I defend and contend for the biblical gospel because it alone, Paul says in Romans 1.16, it alone is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believe it. This is why it's this important. So now in verses 5 to 16. God has Jude issue this call because there's a problem. He's going to describe the problem this heresy is causing. He's going to kind of go backwards because he's going to describe the judgment that false teachers and any of them who follow him, who don't repent and turn back to the truth, what is going to happen. And there's judgment. Three Old Testament examples, the destruction of false teachers. He gives three Old Testament examples of how they're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and actually denying our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, 
He uses the example of Exodus. God redeemed an entire nation out of Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. Did all of them make it into the Promised Land? No. In fact, they get up to it, and I believe this is what it's talking about in Numbers 14. They get up to it. Twelve went into Spion, came, and ten were bad, and two were good. And those ten, and that whole generation, perished in the wilderness. Because they didn't believe God. He had redeemed them, he had rescued them, parted the Red Sea, and they said, there's giants in there. <laughs> hmm. Can't. And they died in the wilderness. So that was their judgment. Save Joshua and Caleb. Right? So he gives us that example. Uh, it's like heart-wrenching. From Exodus to Deuteronomy, a continual uh, record of people who saw what God had done for them and rejected him and instead lived according to their own lusts. Uh, we even see that. Sinai. Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. I don't know how long he's there. Two days, two weeks, two hours. And the people are like, where's God? Where's Moses? Make us a golden calf, Aaron. Let's bow down to it and then get involved in immoral type of worship practices. <laughs> it's crazy. This is what people do. And, and so if we follow them, judgment's going to happen. Now, example number two uh, is in verse six. The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until judgment day. In this book, the book of Jude, Jude is going to reference two books that are not part of the Bible. Uh, they're they're non-canonical books. Uh, there might be in some Bibles, they're often found between Malachi and Matthew. It's called the Apocrypha. I don't believe it's part of the Bible. That's why hopefully none of your Bibles have it in there. It doesn't mean they're bad books. You can read them. They're not God's word, though. All right, so they're important to Jewish people. They're Jewish historical books. One's the book of Enoch, uh, the one who was translated, right, seventh from Adam. We're going to learn from about him. And one is a book called The Assumption of Moses. He's going to quote twice. Jude is going to quote God inspired you to write this, so God is quoting twice from these books. Does that mean that those books are God's word? No. Um, Paul quoted from a monument when he was trying to preach. That doesn't mean the guy who inscribed that this is a monument to the God we don't know who this is. It's just we're trying to cover all our bases, so no, that, that wasn't inspired. Paul quotes a, a, a poet from Crete in the book of Titus. Does that mean that that poet was inspired by God? No, it's just you're familiar with it. He's using an example, using an illustration. So in verse 6, he's talking about angels that left their first estate. What is this talking about? Well, we got one verse, and we don't have a whole lot beyond that. We know in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and I'll be very careful because we don't have children's church here right now, but there is, a, there is some who believe that there was this talking about angels who, um, against God's order, cohabitated with human beings. And I'll leave it right there. If you've got any questions, you can come ask me later. Uh, it Maybe it is. That's what the book of Enoch says. All right, but what did the fallen angels do? They fell. It could just be talking about that. They were, Satan led. He, he left becoming Lucifer, became Satan, and he took a bunch of angels with him. What did they do? They left their first estate, as verse 6 says, their habitation of heaven, and he's reserved them. I mean, that's them, judgment. So either way, it's talking about the same end is there. Example three, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened there. So Jude lists three examples here in verse uh, seven of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all of them are tied in some way to immorality because that's what the struggle was. People were, were going to live however they wanted, according to their lusts. And um, this is what we learn. This is what happens when false teachers and those who follow them, when they reject the gospel, they contradict it, they add, they take it away. The biblical gospel, there is eternal destruction. That is always what happens. And he's like, this is what's going to happen with these guys too, because this is how God works. That's a terrible end. I don't want that to happen to me. And so I turn to Jesus Christ. I don't want that to happen to you. None of us should want 
that to happen to anybody. So that's why we need to be proclaiming the one true biblical gospel. Because false teachers and those that follow them who reject the gospel, this is where they're going to end up. We got to be real about this. This is what the Bible says. It's not nice. But, I mean, I like to think everybody goes to heaven and all dogs go to heaven. But the Bible doesn't say that. Those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is not where they go. All right? So we, we got to deal with that. The description of false teachers, verses 8 to 6. He calls them in verse 8, filthy dreamers. Um, they were making out things. I got a vision from God, and, and that's why um, they're teaching this false gospel here in this church. Uh, he says they're teaching deceiving doctrines. They defile the flesh in verse 8. Their unbelief in this gospel is evidenced in their immoral lifestyles, and not just their own, but they're encouraging others to live that way. He says they despise dominions and speak evil of dignities. This happened back in 2 Peter. He used the same thing. They were talking evil about angels. It's so crazy. I mean, we really don't talk about angels a lot unless we're going through a passage of Scripture that talks about There's a doctrine of angelology. God has angels, and he's got a doctrine. He teaches us in his words about angels and demons, but they had an incorrect understanding about them. They were almost worshiping angels, and those that they weren't worshiping, they were speaking evil of. And so uh, the bottom line here is they're deceived, they're, they're living wickedly, they're antinomian, they're against law, they're against authority, they're against any kind of rules. They supposedly promise freedom. Yeah, you can live this way, you're free to live like this. Yes, I know you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, but it doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want, uh, and you're free to do that. And, and they're like, they have no idea what freedom is, because they've rejected the only gospel that does actually free you. They're putting people in bondage. In verses 9 and 10, Jude continues this doctrinal lesson on angelology. This is from the book, The Assumption of Moses, that other apocryphal book, all right, that he quotes. And so what happened? Moses died on the mountain. He didn't get to go into the promised land, all right, because of what he did back at the rock. He didn't speak to it. He smacked it, all right? And so God says, you can't go in. He got to see it. Moses dies. Nobody buries him. And scripture tells us that. Well, now in this, this book, this Jewish history book, The Assumption of Moses, it talks about how Michael the Archangel, one of the highest, right? Michael the Archangel, uh, Satan wants to do something with Moses' body, and Michael says, no, I'm, I'm going to bury him. God told me to bury him. But he doesn't argue with the devil. It says right here in the book of Jude that he says, the Lord rebuked thee. So these, these people were so arrogant as human beings, had so much pride um, that they were, gonna, they were arguing with angels or with spirits. And even Michael, the archangel, wouldn't uh, make any railing accusation, it says here, against the devil. He said, the, the Lord rebuke thee. And on verses, uh, verse 11, we got three more examples from the Old Testament on what these false teachers and their followers are like. They're like Cain. Not your dog. All right, the bad Cain in the Bible, right? The first murderer. Uh, they're like Cain. And um, hateful, selfish. He said, I'm going to worship God how I want to worship God. I, I get to decide that. And even to the point of murder, the very first murder. Brother against brother, Cain. They're like Balaam. They're only interested in the Old Testament. Balaam was only in the ministry for the money. That's all they're interested in. You know, we need a guard against that. That's a problem here in America. Uh, George Barna, researcher, puts polls together. He's a Christian. He said, when the gospel came to the Greeks, they turned it into philosophy. That's literally what we're seeing here in Jude. Um, when the gospel came to the Romans, they turned it into a government. Eventually, they did. Constantine made it the, the law of the land. When the gospel came to the Europeans, they made it into a culture. Have you ever been to Europe and seen Christian culture, cathedrals? There's buildings, a lot of buildings, a lot of structures, not full. When the gospel came to America, we turned it into a business. We turned it into a business. 
just like Balaam. Let's be careful on that. Um, and they're like Korah. <laughs> you know what happened there. Led a rebellion against God's man, Moses and Aaron. Ground opened up. Not just Korah, but those that followed him perished. Swallowed by the earth. Verse 12 and 13, we got a list of metaphors for what these false teachers are like. They're like spots in your love feast. It's kind of an interesting word because it means a blemish, but like the Greek word actually means like a hidden reef that if your boat runs up on, you're in trouble. But there are spots on your love feast. What's a love feast? Well, they didn't do communion like we did. They'd have a covered dish dinner, and it would culminate in communion or the Lord's Supper. All right? But these people were a part of the Lord's Supper when Monday through Saturday, they're claiming to know Christ, but they're living in wicked immorality. And so 1 Corinthians says you're participating in the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. Now, you can fix that real simple. You confess your sin and repent of it. All right, but you don't be taking communion and celebrating the death of Christ to redeem you for your sins when you're not willing to change how you live. And this is what they are doing. There's spots on your love feasts. He says they're, they're clouds without water. They're visible, but they don't have a rain. They don't give anybody benefit. They're trees without fruit. Again, visible but dead, sterile, lifeless, without any benefit. They're raging waves of the sea that only produce foam. I like raging waves of the sea. I like it when it's stormy. Uh, what I don't like, have you ever been to the beach and had that foam? That's like the only thing that's nasty to me at the beach, really, is, is when it's all that foam there. And this is what they do. They don't produce anything. Just a lot of noise. They're, they're maybe even dangerous, raging waves. Of the, they're wandering stars, a shooting star, a comet, really bright and visible for a minute, but then you fade out because there's no truth there. Really no truth there. He says, um, verse 14 and 16, the judgment of these false teachers, and he gives a final description of them as well, but in verse 14, listen how many times he says ungodly, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. This word ungodly is the same one that Paul uses in Romans 1.18 when he says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, those seem like the same thing, right? Unrighteousness is our acts. Ungodliness, in that verse in here, is how you think. That's going to lead to those acts of unrighteousness. They don't have any regard for God and his will. If they're using Christianity or the gospel is just to get what they want and to satisfy self, this is who they are. All right, he says in verse uh, 16, he gives us a vice list. It's a small one compared to what Paul and Peter and John, so, you know, we get these lists of sins, and they're always really convicting because, you know, usually you're like, yeah, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't, oh, I do, that's me. This is what he says. So maybe you're like, you know, I'm not living in immorality, Pastor Jason. Good, keep it that way. But he says, look what he said. They're murmurers. <laughs> They're complainers. They walk after their own lusts. And their mouth speaketh great swollen words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Yeah, they speak what people want to hear. And they're doing that so that they follow them to use them in ministry. Sad. This is the state of the church. This is a threat. This is not a description of a Christ follower or a Christ-like self-sacrificial love. It sounds just like Diotrephes from a couple weeks ago who loved to have the preeminence. He's all about himself. That's not what following Jesus is about. These people are just throwing some Bible language in there, Christian aspects to their teaching, but living in whatever way they want to to please themselves, turning God's grace into wicked immorality. So what do we do? The prescription, the commission to contend. What are believers to do? What do we do in a world like this? Because this is what our world's like. What do we do in a culture like this? What do we do when the church is like this? Because they've crept into the church. 
So we've got to respond. What is God's prescription? And it's this. It's a commission to contend. You know what commission means? It means I don't have to do this alone. Me and Pastor Tommy or deacons don't do this. You do this. We all do this together. A great commission. It's a co-mission, a commission to contend. And this is what he gives us here in verse 4. That is the theme uh, of this whole thing. To earnestly contend for the faith. This is what we've got to do. Now, how do we do that? Uh, first of all, he wants us to remember the warning. Because this is so upsetting when we see things like this. Have you been upset with what you've seen in the last few months? I mean, in the last few years. But, I mean, it's just like it's escalating and reaching this apex. And you're like, it can't get any worse. I mean, and we almost joke about it. What's well, going to happen in July? Because... Just going worse and worse and worse. What do we do? Right? Remember the warning. Jesus said here in verses 17 and 19, Jesus and his apostles said this would be the state of things. He says, remember. We told you there's going to be mockers in the last time who are going to walk after their ungodly lusts. So what he's saying there is, look, don't freak out about it in the sense where you're like ready to leave your faith. Defend the faith. Contend for the faith. But just realize this, this is going to happen. Now, being aware of it doesn't mean um, that you're apathetic about it. It doesn't mean you're ambivalent about it. Just, it's like be aware that Jesus said this would happen. And it, it might be pointing to the fact that in the last days, is what he says, this is going to happen. These professors of relationship with Christ, they're in your church. They say Jesus. They do. But they don't have a relationship with him. This is what it tells us there in verse 19. They be they who separate themselves. Literally, they divide. They cause divisions in the church. They be they who separate themselves. They're sensual, not spiritual. They're thinking about here and now, what can please me here and now, and have really no, I mean, my mind is not on heaven and then and there. They, they don't have the spirit. If you're wondering if they're saved, there's the answer. The Holy Spirit's not in them. Well, that's a mark of somebody who's come to faith in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You're indwelt forever by him. Jude's telling us here, there isn't different Gospels, there's not different truths, there's only truth. So contend for it and fight for it. How do we do that? I want you to look at verse um, 20 and 21. There's one main verb there, and it's in verse 21. It says, keep yourselves in the love of Christ. This is how you do it. This is how you contend for the faith. Keep yourselves in the love of Christ. Well, how do you do that? It gives us three participles in verses 20 and 21 for how we do that. First of all, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. How do you build yourselves up? Well, i got to know what my most holy faith is, so you spend time here every day. You spend time in this. This is how you build yourself up. You listen to God. This is how he speaks. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read this out loud. All right? Um, then you talk to him. That's what it says. Praying in the Holy Ghost. There's number two, how you keep yourself in the love of Christ. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Ghost. And finally, at the end of verse 21, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That means looking for his return. That's what protects me from being consumed like these guys are, all about here and now and myself. I'm constantly looking for him to come back. It could be today. It could be today. And we need to live like that. It would change how we live. It would change what we value. It would change how we, what we talk about. <laughs> it would change how we treat each other. Change how we treat each other. Um, so, same word that Paul uses in Titus 2.13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Looking for the mercy of Christ. So that's how we do it. Verses 20-21, that is how you and I keep ourselves. This is how we contend for the faith. But... The problem is, I think sometimes our churches get into a hold the fort mentality, like keep the faith. And that's not what God's talking about here. 
We need to do that. We need to defend. But he didn't call us to defend in Jude. He called us to contend. To contend for the faith. Agonizingly fight for the faith. He didn't call us to be contentious. He called us to contend for the faith. So how do we do that? Well, here's the, here's the trap I think we fall into. Like, we're going to defend the faith. We're going to be the last standing church, you know, in Bladen County that's for the gospel. And look, we should defend the faith. But if that's all we ever do, we're going to be in trouble. And that's not what Jude tells us to do. That's not what God tells us to do. When I was in college, we had a really good soccer team. I was a bench, all right? So I'm speaking as bench warmer guy, all right? They were really good. Um, no goal scored until national championships. In the national championship game for, okay, Division Three, right? Um, national championship game, they scored a goal. That's how good their defense was. And uh, Coach, he, he had everybody wearing shirts that say, uh, offense wins games, but defense wins championships. And he was right. He was right. You know, in soccer, uh, you want the best defenses? A really good offense. And we got a lot of kids who play here. So, Marley, isn't it a lot better game when, you're, when the ball stays on that side of the pitch? If you're a defender like Sarah was, right, she's offense, so that's what she wants. But see, when your offense plays defense too, when they keep the ball on that, you wear down that defense. They get worn down. Now, your defense is bored. Goalie's just sitting back there like, you know. But, but that's the best defense you can have is to have this offense. You wear, but see, if you don't do that, if you don't do that, guess what happens to you? Your defense gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Uh, it's going to weaken quickly. So we don't hold the fort. We go and get people and bring them into the fort. That's what I believe he's saying here in verse 22 and 23. I think 22 is talking mostly about saved people because he saved people. Christians can be in the church and fall for deceit. doesn't mean they lose their salvation. It means that it, it's going to affect their testimony and it's going to make them powerless in victory over sin. So we need to lovingly, lovingly, Confront them, contend for the faith, and bring them back. This is what he says. On some having compassion means to convince. The Greek word there. Making a difference. You know, sometimes we need to have compassion. I think verse 22 or 23 is talking more about unsaved, but you could apply it to both. We'll get there. But it says, on some, uh, say with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Well, a Christian's not going into the fire, right? So I, that's why I believe this talking mostly about people who haven't been saved but are falling. So go grab them. Don't just sit in your church and defend is it going to be agonizing? Yeah. Will you lose friends? Probably. Are you going to gain friends for eternity? Probably. That's a lot more worth it. He, he gives us two rescue tools here. And look, I, we, just, we need discernment. Pray for it. God will give you discernment. Because honestly, sometimes the same person, the same person, you might have to use a different per, a tool on. There might be a moment in their life. These are all people. We're rescuing the wandering. They're people. They're people with pain and people with pasts and, and people with different personalities. And so um, some, some you need to be compassionate on and loving them back to Jesus. And some you need to love them back to Jesus by getting a hold of them, by grabbing them with fear. And, and sometimes you need to do that to the same person at different times in their lives. God will give you discernment. Pray for it. He will. Um, he closes. Verse 24 and 25. But I want to hit one more thing. I'm sorry. I'm 23. It says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Look, you know, the world will tell you what we just said was unloving. It's not tolerant. It's not tolerant to tell someone they're wrong or they're falling into truth. No, it's the most loving thing you could do. Eternally loving. <laughs> I mean, if we really believe in heaven and hell, like the Bible says, that's the most eternally loving thing you could do. You're not being mean. You know what you're telling them according to verse 23? You're like, I love you. 
but I hate what you're wearing. I love you, but I hate your outfit right now. And I'm telling you that because I love you. Uh, verse 24 and 25, Jude closes with a doxology. It's a prayer, but it's also this empowering promise that it is all worth it. Everything he's asking us to do is worth it. Contending isn't easy. It's, not, uh, it's a battle. It's not a soccer game. All right? It's an all-out battle to contend this way. But eternity is at stake. Uh, people's lives are at stake. God's glory is at stake. Uh, so we have this promise. He is able to keep you from falling. Jesus is. Christian? Aren't you glad he is able to keep you from falling? Doesn't depend on you. Right. And he's able to present you faultless before his presence right, with exceeding joy. Um, there's joy ahead. Yeah, there's pain now. There's battle now. There's joy ahead. People who, verse 20, said to keep ourselves in the love of Christ, and verse 24 says we're kept. See that? He's, a, he's able to keep us. So there's like, well, which is it? Do I keep myself, or is it you able to keep me? Yes. Um, John Piper said this. The, the best evidence of Christ's keeping of you, meaning you're saved, you are truly saved, don't listen to Satan's lies, I mean, you've trusted Christ as Savior, there's been that moment in your life when you turn to him. The best evidence of Christ's keeping of you is precisely in your fighting to be kept. You know why that is? You couldn't do it without him. Without his grace in your life, he doesn't give you a want to do any of this stuff. He doesn't give you, uh, a, you know, a, a guilt over sin. Talking to one person struggling with this a couple years ago. I can't believe it. I guess I'm not really saved. I'm like, I know you were saved. I was there that night when you trusted Jesus Christ as your saved. I just don't know because I did this. Messed up again. It's like, unsaved people don't feel bad about that, bud. <laughs> So his keeping of you is evidenced in your fighting to be kept. Keep fighting. Keep fighting, church. Contend. That's what it means. So there might be one here or even watching, and you don't even know the salvation that you'd wanted to write about, what we've been talking about. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we have to give the gospel out. That's our calling, and we're, we're asking you this morning, if you've never done that, is, is Christ calling you now to trust in him as your personal savior. We're going to have a time of invitation in a moment. If you've got questions about that, if you want to do that, now's the time. Uh, otherwise, like if, you, if we've got information on our website about what that is in the back of the bulletin, you can call me at any time, 24-7. I want you to know for sure what it means to follow Jesus. Now, Christian, have you been contending? John told us in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, lethargy is lethal. Have you been earnestly contending? That's what it says, agonizingly. Have you been doing that? Um, have you been avoiding deceit, temptation whenever you could, but when you can't, identifying it and running from it, running to Christ? This is Jude's message. The best way to avoid error and attack deceit is by a holy church, meaning you, not like us, but yes, us, but us as individuals. Uh, a church that's comprised of Christians living in holiness, um, they're going to be defending the truth and contending for the truth and advancing the kingdom. The best way to guard against truth is to, or to guard for truth is to live it. The best way to defend truth is to demonstrate truth. Maybe we haven't been doing that as good as we should have. And if not, won't you turn to Christ this morning? Ask him to forgive you, confess lethargy, confess maybe apathy, or even just battle weariness. I'm there. I'm kind of weary. <laughs> last few months uh, get you weary. And commit to rely on his strength alone. Confess it as sin. 
bow in confession, rise in commitment this morning, because it's really important. Contending is painful, but contending is really important. Um, our, our families, our churches, our community, our nation, God's glory is at stake. So as we have a time of invitation, it's just that Tommy and the praise team are going to come, and um, it's a place of grace, and I know that's my cute little phrase, but I really mean that. This is a, a place that God is giving you to respond to his word, however he's calling on you to do that this morning, uh, for sin to be freely forgiven, a place of grace to plead, for strength to contend, and so I'm going to ask that you'd answer this commission to contend. However God is calling on you to respond, today I just ask that you'd obey.